Independent Living Nation, welcome to The Independent Life. Kristen Griffin, Executive Director for Elder Options, which is an area for aging agency, the AAAs, are coming to talk to you about what it's like to be an older adult, a senior, you may already be one and know well what it is like, but this is a conversation everyone needs to listen to for many, many different reasons. We get into issues that seniors, older adults face, which if you're not a senior or older adult, you know someone that is a family member. And so if this does not impact you directly, it certainly impacts somebody you know. And she talks to us about the isolation and depression that seniors were already experiencing before the COVID pandemic and now even more so. And this is a killer. Loneliness is known to be associated with physical ailments like heart disease, cancer, strokes, and it is something that shortens people's lives and now more than ever is a huge issue. We talk about seniors being victims of abuse to the level of which child abuse is out there but does not get near enough the attention that it should and we get into a very tough conversation because we have to look in the mirror on this one and understand in our country that this is a major issue that is under the radar and impacts a lot of people and is devastating. We also talk about the importance of caregivers, informal caregivers, people that are friends, family members of people that they know and love who are older adults and are caring for them. And the fact that is that these important, essential, critical, informal caregivers are aging too and they need help psychologically emotionally for the self-care that they need to do the work that they're doing to be able to ensure that we can age healthy in our society the importance of caregiving we really get into deep on this one and it is so very important we talk about vaccines of course in the covid pandemic and older adults and we talk about the services that elder options provides the Medicare waiver list. They have a hotline that people can call into, the areas of depression, falls, preventing falls. That's a huge one there. It's very important for people to pay attention to. Then we talk a lot about some of the essential things that are needed to do the work that Kristen does. And we talk about the importance of patience, persistence, having faith that things are going to work out. We talk about the differences between advocating for policies to make change, for providing programs to make change, and what that's like. And we get to know a little bit more about Kristen and her journey into where she is as a director for Elder Options. And this is a very important conversation for people that work in the Independent Living Network. People may not know this or not, but Centers for Independent Living reside in the same federal agency as the area agencies on aging, the AAAs in which the Elder Options is funded. We are literally sister agencies. So we reside in the Department of Health and Human Services, biggest department in our government, including the military, and within there, the Administration for Community Living. So the AAAs, Centers for Independent Living, we are in the same mission of ensuring the people we serve can live as independently as they can. And here in Florida, I am eager to facilitate more collaborations and cooperations between Centers for Independent Living 
and the area agencies on aging, the AAAs, and making this happen. Literally, the 16 counties that we cover in Central Florida, North Central Florida here, are the same 16 counties that Kristen's responsible for in the elder options. We have a state agency, FASL, Florida Associations for Centers for Independent Living, that are made up of directors from the 15 different centers in the state. Well, so does Elder Options. They have 11 different regions with different directors, and they have an organization as well that they collaborate with and leverage resources and do the same kind of things that we do. And after having this episode, you know, Kristen and I had talked about this before, but we are more eager than ever to combine forces to make sure that we can serve out our mission to ensure people, all people, are able to live the independent life. Check out this conversation. I know you're gonna get a lot out of it and learn a lot of it. I know I did. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome, Independent Living Nation. We have Kristen here with us, the Executive Director for Elder Options. Thank you for being uh, available to us. I know you're extremely busy doing the work that you do. So maybe we can start there and explain to listeners, what is Elder Options? So Elder Options, well, you know, to start out with just the elevator speech, we're not-for-profit. We've been around since uh, 1977. We've been serving the community. Uh, we do a variety of things. I, I say, uh, gosh, when we started back in the 70s, it was more of an administrative entity, right? So we, um, there's a federal law called the Older Americans Act. And Area Agencies on Aging, which is, is what we're designated as. Triple A's, um, yeah. Yeah, triple A's. We were created um, from that act, the Older Americans Act. So they have to be have a state unit on aging and the Department of Elder Affairs is our state unit on aging. Mm -hmm. So every state has one and the state unit on aging kind of divvies the state up to what they call planning and service areas. So PSAs, we call them. And Florida's uh, divvied us up to 11 planning and service areas where we're actually the old HRS line. So I don't know if you uh -huh. remember years I ago, do. Yeah. was the HRS. And so that's how they divvied the um, state up. And so there's 11 area agencies in Florida. We're one of them. We're in what's called PSA three. So uh, we actually are one that, well, we are geographically the largest one. We're getting close to being one of the largest with 60 and older. We are serving the mo most counties. We have the largest number of counties of 16 counties in our service area. So, but we were the area agency on aging and that was more administrative. So, and that way we take all the federal and state funds for home and community-based services and we fund them out to what we call lead agencies. So we kind of pass them through to direct service providers out in the community. And then they provide the direct services. So that we've been doing since 1977. Um, but we also do some direct services. And lots of times that's what people don't know about elder options and what we do. We have an elder helpline and that we've been operating since the 80s. We have live operators Monday through Friday, eight to five, that can answer calls. And the number is 1-800-262-2243. People can call that number and we kind of, you know, hear them out. What do they need? And we can kind of direct them and kind of triage them. It's like I think of, you know, is in-home services? Do they need Medicare counseling? So we do that and we have that elder helpline. 
And then we also provide some community education classes. Uh, they're evidence-based classes. So every educational opportunity we offer is passed. You know, it's called, it's evidence-based. It's passed rigorous testing in a university system. And so in other words, it's proven that the, the training or the intervention That's great. will produce a positive outcome. So we have a really big education component. Uh, we do caregiver training. We have a class called Savvy Caregiver. We do health and wellness. So we have falls prevention classes through Tai Chi and Matter of Balance. We have, you know, chronic disease management classes, diabetes education classes, and uh, a wide variety of kind of educational opportunities that we have uh, trained individuals out in the community every day providing. Uh, they're free. So people can go, you know, to our website or whatever to sign up. Then we also do a shine program. So we do Medicare counseling. It's a free Medicare program and I can get more into these later, but yeah. so we'll just show you, we do quite a bit. And then um, we also manage the waiting list that that happened about 2005. I think we got what's considered designated to kind of manage all of the long-term care waiting lists. So we do the Medicaid long-term care waiting uh -huh. list and anybody's interested in in-home services that are publicly funded, we would screen them, put them on the waiting list. And then we work with um, the department and ACA every month to, they'll give us actual names, uh, slots. They'll say this many people, we have this much funding, here's this many people. And then we help them get through the eligibility process and, and it could be through BCF and functional eligibility through the um, CARES at department. So, and once we get them through that eligibility process, they can get them on services. So. We do a lot of stuff. Elder Options is uh, a wonderful agency that just does a wide variety of things. So. Yeah. Well, I'm going to connect this to Centers for Independent Living and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems that we reside in the same place federally, Department of Health and Human Services and the Administration for Community Living. Am I right so far? Are absolutely correct. <laughs> All right. So I see Centers for Independent Living and Elder Options, these area agencies on aging, to be like, you know, sister agencies, let's say, you know, so we, we reside in the same place in the federal government. I think our monies flow through the state differently. It sounds like you probably with Department of Child and Family, it sounds like, and we're a division of vocational rehabilitation. But in, in a way, I, I feel like our missions are somewhat similar in this sense. And correct me if I'm wrong, we're providing the types of services that people would need to live independently in the community. And that's very broad. Is that correct? No, it's, it's yeah. right. Right. Absolutely. We, we definitely are very much at the same mission and, you know, looking at the, you know, just as <laughs> I go back to you and I having discussions before the pandemic yeah. and it feels like the pandemic is forever going on. Right. <laughs> but we really need to have better communication because there's just so much crossover in yeah. so many ways that, you know, we see that we're out there doing the same good work. Yeah. That's why I wanted to really have you on to really showcase what, what you all are about because we really are sister agencies I would really love to facilitate, and I know you've talked about this as well, more collaborations between the Independent Living Network and the Network of Area Agencies on Aging. You know, you talked about how your service area three with 16 counties, you know, we have a catchment area of 16 counties, and I think they're the same counties, like literally all 16, I think, like match verbatim. So. And, and so we have 15 centers for independent living in the state. And so there probably won't be direct overlap with each of them like ours has, but there's going to be some overlap there. And I fully believe that the more integrated we become between elder options or the, you know, AAAs and centers for independent living, 
think leveraging our resources together would just force multiply our efforts in ensuring people in the community to whatever extent possible can live independently. No, oh, I, I agree. I really do. I, I it's just, uh, you know, uh, seems like something that was like a no brainer. We should have been <laughs> working closer. You know, it's just funny, but public policy over the years has, has kind of been somewhat siloed, but I, I absolutely see it that way and really feel like um, we need to leverage funds right now as best we can. Yeah. Um, Cause we definitely, especially in Florida, have plenty of people to serve. Yeah. 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 And I think one of the things that I, I, I really try to educate people on that is collaboration is hard. It's not just, well, we need to get out of our silos and collaborate. It's people like you and I, who, you know, are kindred spirits, you know, both as directors and, and in terms of our mission as an organization. And there's many barriers to collaborations that I see that are out there. It's time. It's, you know, making sure that we're serving the people that we need to serve. That's so time consuming. And then to pick our heads up and actually get together and to collaborate, you almost have to pull over to the side of the road to be able to do this. But I, I do feel like it is important that we figure it out because it would help us, I think, upstream more, you know, in solving some of the maybe the underlying issues that are more macro in nature and, and then would trickle down stream to help us out from the day to day. But as you you know have alluded to with your services and, and the older adults that you serve, it's just trying to keep up with meeting the day-to-day needs. Um, it can really just, you know, be all-consuming. And now with the pandemic, like you said, we had connected right before the pandemic. And now with the pandemic, uh, that's another layer of complications to get together. So it takes beyond just the will and want to collaborate. But it's there. there's some mechanics there involved that uh, are needing to be figured out as well. Absolutely. I tell you that that's the thing. Time is just, it's precious. you know, it's so precious and it's so hard just to have the dialogue and to sit down. And I mean, cause you have to have the, the time for the dialogue, the understanding that, you know, and, and really kind of brainstorming and, but it's definitely something that needs to be done. I'll, I'll tell you what we're really seeing more and more of is, you know, these aging caregivers caring for people with disabilities too. So, mm. and then they're having their own disability and it's like, um, our services are there, but sometimes they don't know about them. And, and it's just, it seems like it's pretty sad on our a public policy part that we haven't made sure that there's enough crossover that people even know, yeah. you know, that we have services to support the caregivers so they can continue to keep caring, you know, and we're all living longer. That's the, that's the thing. I mean, I guess it's a good, it is, I know it's a good thing. It's a good thing. We're living longer, right? <laughs> um, we're definitely um, seeing some new things come out of just people who really need the help and, and especially the caregivers. Yeah. So I definitely see that being a, a, a benefit and a win-win to, to collaborate. Absolutely. And, and and you have a state agency as well that collectively the 11 different service areas culminate under. Is that right? Yeah, we do. Department of Elder Affairs. Department yeah. of Elder Affairs. And we have the Florida Association for Centers for Independent Living, FASL. I think that's going to be a great place to leverage. And I think last time we talked, you were like, the uh, board president or something like that for oh the Florida Association of Area Agencies on Aging okay, yeah I'm the president but I'm trying to get out of that role now. <laughs> I've served <laughs> on the executive committee job. of FASL yeah I hear you then yeah it's another whole job so um but I am still currently yes um and that's the eleven area agencies on aging and so we we do we collaborate a lot together I, we. It's been interesting over the years as we've taken on um, different duties. It's we've really started to try to standardize more, right? What the eleven do, sure. 
I know that, you know, kind of um, the previous director who I worked under, he, you know, back in the day, uh, all 11 operated just so very differently, right? Just based on the community uh-huh. need and, and the policy was was what much more flexible back then. Well, I think that would be a good place to collaborate, you know, at a state level. So like we have our FASL quarterly meeting next week and, you know, all the directors will be there and I'll pitch this too, that, you know, perhaps we could have representation from your know, your state agency uh, AAA um, and our representatives from FASL presented each of the. Uh, I'm assuming you have quarterly meetings like we do and get together all the directors, and uh, maybe that would be a good place to at least you know throw throw this out there more interagency collaborations and sprinkle you know some of that magic dust hopefully that can make it happen. Yeah, we're we're still doing virtual, but we, we do monthly. Too. Yeah. Meeting. Oh, you yeah, do, monthly. do monthly. All right. Yeah. So, so let's uh, offline here. Let's let's see if we can get together. Maybe myself and another director, you know, can show up and we can talk talk some shop and stuff like that. That would be fast. That would be fabulous. And so, you know, I want to get to also the needs, you know, of older adults, you know, in the state of Florida, and maybe we can really kind of enter into getting deeper about what you all do and how you serve pe- people with older adults and and the caregiver issue that you're bringing up here in terms of the state of Florida. Uh, you know, being a state where it's well known for people, you know, coming here to retire. And I want to say I heard a number, uh, and I don't know if you know any kind of numbers like this, but how many people move to the state of Florida, either daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, or anything else like that, that are over the I age of 60? I don't know the exact number. Yeah. I don't know the exact number, but I will say that, especially since the pandemic's happened, you know, you see, I mean, we all see it. it there's not enough housing even. Uh, there's a lot of people, it seems, but they're retiring too. And, and, we have in our 16 county area, and since you know they're the mm-hmm. same, you know we have the the villages, which right now is yeah. the number one retirement community in the United States of America. So, you know you're you're looking at in our 16 county area, we have six, over 637,000 people aged 16 and over. So we're and our area is growing. Central Florida, North Central Florida is growing. It's blowing so. up. It is. Yeah. I, I, is. I, you know, I got to look it up, but I wanted to say like, cause I think it, um, his name is Dr. Anthony something or other. He, I think he just retired. I think he was pretty involved with the senior rec center there and he was given a, a you know, presentation. And I want to say, he said like 10,000 a day over 60 were moving here. And, and he talked about how you know, collectively the state of Florida has more people over 60 than like 22 states and he named off the states. Yeah. Like collectively, like there's 22 states and Florida in and of itself has more than, you know, so it's these mind boggling numbers of people that are over the age of 60 in the state. So right there, the need is huge in terms of just the sheer numbers. And like you said, the villages in our catchment area being the number one in the United States. So volume is, is one, but what are some of the issue areas then within, you know, the community of people that are over age 60, you're hitting on one, which is aging caregivers. And we'll get into that one for sure, but just due to a rough shot, what are some of the issues out there that people really need to be aware of if they're not aware of regarding older adults? Well, I think what's what we're really seeing well, a lot of things. One is that the dollar doesn't go as far, right? Yeah. So people's retirement aren't going as far in inflation. So you you know you have you have financial issues and concerns out there too. And so then you have fixed incomes and costs going up. And so you look at that. Um, what we've really seen recently that we're focusing a lot on is mental well-being, social isolation. Um, COVID has really right. taken a huge impact. And it's interesting because they, it doesn't seem like we're seeing people want to get back out too much either. I mean, some are, but, but we're seeing a lot of older adults. And I think it's just because of the, the way the pandemic, you know, just 
hit them so hard, that population, mm -hmm. they're very reluctant to get back out into the community and get out of their homes. And so we're trying to find new and innovative solutions and technologies and ways we can kind of still um, help them to engage, right? Engage in society, engage with each other. And, you know, doing meetings via Zoom and things like that and trainings via Zoom um, only works so much. So we, we've got yeah. some new technology. We're trying, oh, we have one called Uniper that actually is, is through the TV with a remote. So as long as their TV has an HDMI, uh -huh. we plug in a box and then they can interact with people um, in classes on their TV and, and they feel more comfortable with their TV and their remote versus getting on a computer. Sure. So we're trying out some new technologies. And of course, a lot of people are getting into the market, right? So you have more options, but social isolation is, um, is really concerning. There is a, st a statistic out there and I don't want to be quoted on it, but it's something like being socially isolated for a senior is as bad as smoking 15 seconds. You're absolutely right. I, I've seen the research, I've looked it up and, and it came out a few years ago and it, it was a years of life lost statistical analysis. So how many years of life is actually lost due to loneliness? Four years. People have measured out to where, you know, the researchers, the instrument they were using in terms of loneliness, four years. And they were saying that the, there's two, two generations that are most lonely. One is seniors, older adults, the other is millennials. But uh, yeah, so the, those two scored the highest on the loneliness chart. And they said on average, people can lose four years of life due to isolation and loneliness and uh, it manifests into physical ailments and substance use and all different other kind of things. It's real. And uh, yeah, it's very concerning. So what, what have you seen in terms of, you know, so you're talking about, you know, some of these technologies that could be used. They're great to have, but certainly have some limitations to them as well. Any other ideas or things that are coming down the pipeline of, on how we can do better to address this one? It's a hard one, especially with a pandemic. It's really hard. I think, yeah, the pandemic has made it really difficult. Now, you know, we do some wellness checks, telephone reassurance calls, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, uh -huh. you know, and trying to just have them at least engaged over the phone and, and have a conversation. Um, but it is really hard. I mean, the technology option works, but in your rural areas, it doesn't work. And yeah. so that's where, you know, how do you get to those individuals? How can you have them still feel engaged? You know, we have a program we do, uh, it's called PEARLS. It's a depression management program. It's also evidence-based mm -hmm. and, and counselors will work one-on-one -on -one with the individual senior to come up with what are some of the pleasure rewarding activities you used to do? Like some seniors, maybe they used to cook and they enjoyed it or they were sewing or they, they spent some time, you know, going out and seeing their grandkids play, you yeah. know. And then they stop doing it, trying to really help them slowly to engage back into some things that used to bring them joy. And it's a, a six month program. Our, we, we work with our counselors, work with the individual to set goals and really try to engage, you know. So you can have programs like that where you can work one on one, but it's not going to help, you know, the masses. So hopefully we can get past the pandemic. We can get some of our centers back open and we can, you know, get people back out and engage. But it, it's a huge concern. And, and we don't really have the answers right now. And again, these technologies we're trying, they work for some, but they don't work for everyone. Sure. Yeah, it can be two-dimensional, right? It is for those of us that used to be engaged face-to-face -face and then having to go through a two-dimensional kind of thing. It's great to have the technology. I'm glad we're at least in the 
age when we can have these technologies versus not have them. But they, we're finding they have limitations too because we're a lot in the same boat you are. We're still doing our classes and, and our one-on-ones and, and things that we would normally be doing face-to-face. We're still distancing. We serve a vulnerable population too. And so we want to make sure that their physical health and safety is the first thing that we're protecting. And we're, we're ourselves trying to figure out more and better and innovative ways to, to really make these connections and communities happen. You know, it's a tough one. Yeah, you know, it is. And I, you know, it's just on the uh, CCO meeting, CCOA meeting this morning, the one that you talked really yeah. about. And, uh, you know, what I really notice on these meetings and all when we used to be face to face is that you don't have those side conversations, right? You don't get to sit there and really talk. You know, I used to come in early and I'd sit down and I'd talk with John, how are you doing? How's yeah. your family? You know, you don't do all of that kind of because you're, you don't, you know, you do a little bit of it, but it's hard because everybody's listening in the same conversation. You can't just have, you know, one-offs, two or three people in different groups. And I yeah. think that that is really hurting with the virtual. Um, it, That's a good that point. Kinda, that side connection that you have and those side conversations that you have that you get to know people outside of just the, yeah. the collective meeting. That's um, a really so good I, point. You know, hoping that we get to a back, but we want to be safe. And I get it. I, I get them being nervous about coming back. Sure. We, we, we thought about doing a virtual, uh, going back face-to-face with CCOA and they're reluctant. So they're going to hold off till maybe March. We're recording this in November and I know it, the trend has been downward since the Delta spike in July, August. But now I hear that, you know, half of the states are experiencing surges going back up. Europe's going through a fifth wave you know, and we're entering into flu season. So yeah, I feel you. We're still operating at a modified level ourselves, very limited on face-to-face. We're doing it when necessary. You know, so one of the things that we're also involved with right now, and you may have received some of this funding too. I think it did come from ACL, but it was in conjunction with the CDCs to do vaccine promotions in our population. Did you also get involved in any, or whether it's that effort or other efforts in promoting the vaccine in older adults? Yeah, we we did. We got a, we got a little a, a pot of money, a separate pot of money um, through ACL mm-hmm. and the CDC, yep. and, and it was vaccine awareness and outreach. And you know, we've been doing that, and um, really, you know, it's been pretty successful. It's just very difficult, <laughs> and I'm sure you're you're running into that too, right? Um, but we've we, we've been out there, and I think in our population, it's got much higher um, vaccination rates. So the older adults, which is a good thing. Yeah. What, what's your strategy? Because I know this money has some flexibilities and people are doing other things and innovative things. So I'm always looking to learn. So so what did you uh, specifically uh, use your money to do? Uh, well, what we decided to do was go down an avenue of doing ambassadors within small within the community. Ah, so we cool. found either faith-based or in the rural communities. Um, I live in a rural community now. I live in actually Steenahatchee, Florida. Oh, good for uh, you. That's beautiful there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's a small, small town. And uh, my, my husband and I had been fishing here for many, many, many years. Ah. And we'd bought a foreclosure many years ago. And we're slowly working on it and still a work in progress. But when the pandemic happened, then, you know, we just thought, let's, let's get over here. Sure. So we did. Um, and I know how the rural communities are, and they really listen to people within their community yeah. that they trust, right? It's not somebody coming out from Gainesville or yeah. you know, very far. An expert. 
a politician. Yeah, an expert an to tell us how, you know. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work that way. So, uh, so we did, we started with stipends for ambassadors and we found some really good ones. Um, we did, you know, Facebook lives with them and did some, you know, communication, but really let those ambassadors try to take the message out mm -hmm. versus us. And it worked out good because still, we're still doing it. Works out great because we pay those ambassadors like a stipend for a blog or a presentation or however they want to communicate in their communities. So it's been, a, I think, a pretty good strategy, but, you know, still finding the ambassadors in each of the communities has been kind of difficult too. So yeah. um, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. Outreach, you know, in general has been a challenge too with the pandemic and you're probably feeling sure. that too. How, how do you get the word out? Yeah. Because it, it's not like you go to the health fairs or you go to these community events. Anymore. Tabling was so, awesome. Yeah. It was and now it's gone. <laughs> well, it'll come back. Yeah. I love your idea offline again. I'm going to get at you and, and, and learn more about it. And in the field I come from, community health workers, so representatives of the target community that we would work with, key players that are you know have the talents and recognition within the community, and, and give them some you know training tools and a strategy and go out and do it. So I love your approach. That's awesome to be able to use some of that. And I, and I do think like this is a very hard subject. I feel like it's very black or white or concrete and you know, people's minds at this point are likely made up. But if there's any, I think, opportunity to, to open someone's mind to thinking about differently than they might be thinking about, it's likely face-to-face, word-of-mouth, someone that they might trust to be able to enter into a, a courageous conversation to have around it. So I'm sure you've learned a lot from it. We have. It's a, you know, it's a sensitive issue for people in, in many ways. So, sure. Yeah. Sure. We found it to work pretty good. So, um, and now we're, we're moving into booster. Yep. Booster education. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. What, I, what I did find with that funding that was somewhat frustrating is that it was only for the COVID vaccine. They would not let us promote other vaccines with that funding. I don't know if you found that. Yeah. Um, yep. No, yeah, that has those strings on it. Do that. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we went and wrote a separate grant, um, a smaller pot of money, and we received it. We were happy to receive it, and it allowed us to talk about flu vaccinations and shingle vaccinations and other vaccinations that we think are very important sure. for older adults. Huge. So we thought, yeah. while, while we're out there, you know, doing this work, we want to talk about all the vaccinations. Uh -huh. And so just to do that, we were happy to to apply and get that. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and you know, that's a you know, more direct, you know, way of kind of linking in other ways of maybe communicating with people about things. So what I love about your approach there, it could be a wraparound, right? So, you know, you're talking to somebody promoting the, the COVID vaccine. Now you got, okay, well, what about shingles and all these others? But also, well, do you know we have this helpline? Do you know we have this pearls class? Do you know we do fall prevention? I think you all even do <laughs> Meals on Wheels, right? Yeah, well, we don't do it directly. Our, our providers do okay. that. We do take that message out. Yeah. I will tell you that I've told my staff, you know, there's some silver linings in, in this pandemic. And, you know, unfortunately, you always need to look for a silver lining sure. in, in times of, of challenge. And so one of them is that we've, we've never had the ability to, to even have an outreach coordinator, or it's always been like a side job of somebody who, mm. you, know, you know, has a lot of other things on their plate. 
And so we were able to get an outreach coordinator. And, and so we're actually getting our message out about everything more than we ever have before. Of course, now we're in a challenging time, as I said, with outreach, because a lot of stuff is virtually, but but just having somebody be able to be dedicated to thinking about getting the word out um, is luxury we've had over the years. And that's huge. Um, I'm going to go back to what you first said is that one of the biggest barriers is that for people that need our services, don't even know we exist providing the services that they need. And you probably heard this cliche where we're the best kept secret in town. Yep. And if people have heard of us, it's usually a misperception like, oh, Center for Independent Living, you do residential, you have beds, you're in assisted living. No, we're the opposite. So one of the things that we found the biggest barriers is, is that, you know, we don't get paid to do marketing. You know, we get paid to do service provision. So I, and I get that too, you know, we're, we're good stewards of the taxpayer's money. We're geared to provide direct services to meet the needs of the people. Um, that we're serving absolutely 100%. And at the same time, it makes it difficult to really, I would consider, serve the high-hanging fruit. The people that might need us the most don't even know about us. And how do we get them in the doors constantly? Something that we're always asking ourselves. You know, how do we reach those people that likely need us the most and don't even know we exist? So I love to hear that there is a silver lining. Every great cloud needs a silver lining, right? Yeah. That, you know, you can have these outreach ambassadors that are promoting the vaccine to then, you know, raise awareness, especially to people that might not know who you are. So I, lo I love that you've linked that up together. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. <laughs> yeah, getting the word out. Yeah, we don't get paid to do a lot of the marketing. So, and, and I imagine, you know, with your population as well, and maybe this is a stereotype, but, you know, may not be linked up on social media or have the fanciest technologies nowadays that are used by people and perhaps even get the word out and stuff like that. Or am I wrong? And, and that's a stereotype. No, I was going to say it's changing. Um, so, you know, the older of the old population that we serve, no, are not uh -huh. as many aren't on the technologies and, and on the Facebooks and the smartphones and things like that, or the internet even in general. But we really are now that the baby boomers are kind of aging uh -huh. and getting in there. We really are seeing more and more tendency to use the technologies. Okay. Where I'm really seeing a divide, I think, is where there's not good broadband access, uh, good internet access yeah. in the rural Especially areas. in rural. It's unbelievable, but I truly, um, you know, that's going to be the, the, at least now with a lot of the virtual programming, that's going to be where you're really going to see the big divide of the inequities, right? Mm. Um, there's so much more available to somebody who has internet than somebody who does not have internet at this time or even stable internet. So, but, you know, yeah, uh, the oldest of the olds, probably not so much, but again, we're seeing quite a few people and we, we did some training, Zoom training, we did a Zoom manual. We have really tried to help those who aren't comfortable with it to try to get comfortable with it. Uh -huh. What's funny is what we found is it's either, you either put your mind to it and you want to do it and you get it done, or there's people who just are, no, I'm just not going to do it, I don't want it. Yeah. it it's like, it's like your brain won't even try. And so um yeah and, and once they're just if they made their mind up they're not going to it's not going to work um but well i love what our good friend shirley uh, bloodsworth said on her episode she's just like if you want to communicate with me you're gonna to have to text me and you're gonna to have to learn to text so you know everybody that knows and loves shirley and wants to stay in communication with her she's almost like has a, a way of getting people to comply that might not have complied so i love that about her yeah and you know she's amazing and i'll tell you she she always it was funny she would say you know i she gets very angry with people who don't want to uh, embrace technology it drives her crazy. She's, she's so like, ahead of her time. You know, me too. Yeah, <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. She's great, but it's great. It's, 
Yeah. Yeah. Going back to your access to broadband, that's real. And, and we saw this um, a few times, but you know, pronounced during COVID when it first shut down in March 2020, and, and our schools never reopened after that. They left for spring break in March, never came back. Everything went virtual, wasn't ready for virtual. And so many students, you know, especially in low-income neighborhoods uh, and in rural, no access to broadband, mm -hmm. couldn't get in and access the information, let alone having the technologies to access it too. But, you know, it got us thinking and, and just listening to other people talk about this, is access to broadband, you know, something, I don't know about it being a right, but almost like the way we would access roads, like, you know, needing a road just to, to have a car to get onto for transportation is, you know, something that's just right now provided for people in most areas. And we try to build roads. Is this almost like access to broadband, almost the same level of infrastructure need that we have now for roads? Should this be something that, yeah, I don't know. I absolutely think so. And in the infrastructure bill that just passed, there's, there's money in there for broadband. And I was so glad to see that, right? Because yeah. it is infrastructure and it is something that I, I kind of think we have to, if we want equity, right. um, you know, I mean, we already talk about health disparities and, and sort of inequitable, you know, access to healthcare. And that happened for sure in COVID when, you know, doctors were doing virtual visits, but if, you know, you yeah. couldn't on and do a virtual visit and you couldn't get in, you know, your healthcare access was, you know, nil. And, and so if we're going to move towards providing more healthcare and uh, education and things that are uh, critical for all, everyone to have access to, then I think we definitely have to look at it as a, as a required infrastructure that everyone has, you know, yeah. I, 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 I'm big on the idea that we should, you know, look at the greater good and make sure everyone has access. And um, so I push, you know, I, I definitely feel that's the way we need to look. I 100% agree with you there. Now, I want to, you know, I'm dying to get into this because you, you did bring it up and it was uh, caregivers and aging caregivers. So for me, um, when I came on to the Center for Independent Living, you know, I was aware of caregivers and the need to support caregivers at the VA uh, when I was working there, they were really great in terms of their focus on, you know, making sure that the, the caregivers were cared for and was beginning to understand the necessity for that. And as I come on to the, to the center here, it's only grown in my inspiration of, and need and awareness of the, I would almost call it like a healthcare giver crisis in our country. How, you know, first of all, that people need, uh, so many people need caregivers, whether it's just, you know, health related activities of daily living, you know, that are needed just around, you know, where they live. They might not need personal care attendant, but just someone to help them through the normal activities of daily living or companion support, or there's probably more to it as well. And how the industry of, of caregiving has some challenges and isn't meeting the needs of our country that is growing so much in its population. And now you're alluding to a deeper level of where even people that do have perhaps the, you know, informal caregivers where they're living, you know, family members, friends, and et cetera, are aging as well. So talk to me about what you understand about it, because I'm continuing to learn more about the issues that are related to it, but I know I'm just scratching the surface here. So please talk to us about the importance of caregiving and as you're mentioning, caregivers who are aging. 
I have to say, you know, I, I really think as a public policy issue, it, it is really becoming, uh, it's, it's rising to the level that it should have a long time ago. And I think it's really that bringing that education, understanding that all the uncompensated care they provide, mm. that um, we don't, we take for granted, right? And if we don't support the caregiver, then they're not, they're not going to be able to continue to provide that care. So, so we need to, you know, really invest in them. Uh, make sure that they have the supports they need so they can continue to do that. And um, we're seeing now, and everyone's seeing it, right, with the direct um, the direct care workforce shortage, or workforce shortage in general, right? It's not even just direct workers anymore, okay? Right. So, and direct care workers, the, the work that we're asking direct care workers to do is pretty difficult work. It is. So if they can go and make the same amount of money doing something um, that is not as, as challenging sure. and stressful oh, yeah. as what we ask them to do. Um, we're we're going to have an even larger workforce shortage than we've had in the past few years. So, with that in mind, you you really think, okay, we've got to keep the caregivers who are caring supported so they'll continue. Um, it, it's getting its due, and, and I think it's been looked at. But um, we're just we're trying to do it out of our options. As look, people don't even realize they're a caregiver sometimes. So that's right. that's the thing. It's funny. You just all of a sudden. It's like you're doing what you're supposed to do and you don't even identify yourself as a caregiver. Okay, I'm a caregiver. That's right. I have needs too. I need to, you know. Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to make that educational issue out there also for people to understand that um, that they this caregiving journey, what is it? And when you realize you are one, what kind of supports do you need? And, and really understanding the emotions and the conflict sometimes of, become, of being a caregiver, right? Because it's if you're trying to work and, and you're having this, um, what they call the sandwich, you know, where you have the, uh, many times it's the female uh -huh. uh, who's working in, and she's caring for young children too, or still caring for her children, but also caring for her aging or older parent. Gotcha. Or, so you, you're caring on two ends of the spectrum, uh -huh. right? And you don't even realize how much stress is going on the caregiver. And if they don't step back and, and understand it and, and acknowledge it and try to make sure that they care take care of themselves um, health wise and, and mentally and all of that, then they're, then they're going to crash at some point. And so yeah. um, we really try to, to it's a, there's a huge education piece to caregiving, not just providing respite going in, which is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. The number one service they always ask for respite, mm -hmm. somebody to come in, take care of my loved one while I can go away, go shopping, take a break. Yeah, Self-care. It's number one service, but we, we really are trying to focus on education, having people um, understand and care for themselves. And um, one, one class we have, Savvy Caregiver, where you have um, caregivers caring for people with dementia and other you know, memory um, disorders. That's a, such a challenge. It's so, so many different heavy. things. And then they come in and, and with Alzheimer's and dementia, and many times what the, the care recipient goes through, you know, and, and their, their loved one and, and understanding the disease and being able to talk with other caregivers that are going through it, right? Um, peer support is huge. So we've really, we've really tried to focus on education and training from the elder options perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong, the lead agencies are out there providing that respite care and those direct services, and those are important too, very important uh -huh. in all of it, support them. But um, you know, I just really, I'm, I'm feeling like at this point, <laughs> we need every caregiver to continue caring as long as possible, because once they can't anymore, then the system has to take over. And we're just, um, we're really, we're hurting right now um, with trying to be able to have enough capacity with workforce to meet, provide the service. You know, it's kind of sad and, and this kind of off topic a little bit, but um, I've been saying to my board and others, 
where we're getting the most funding we've received, right? Because of this rescue plan funding and all, um, but yet we have the least capacity right now to get it out. So you can get all the money in the world, mm. but if you don't have workers to provide the service, sure. you, you, you need hurt, people, right? Yeah, you need, you need people. people, human resources, um, yeah. It's, it's challenging right now, it's really challenging. articulated I think uh, the, the need it is so deep so the home care industry itself you know is paying such a low wage for for this work that I would argue is you know probably more impactful on people's health outcomes than going in and seeing a clinical doctor absolutely, absolutely you know so, so that's a that's a bold statement to make I get it. You know, clinical doctors are super experts in medical and provide amazing life-saving services. And I'm still saying this. And I'm saying this because I'm understanding that the work that they do day in and day out are just essential for their daily healthcare needs. Yet, comparatively, the pay that they're getting to produce what I would argue to be more impactful in terms of health outcomes are opposite ends of the spectrum. That's great. I really... It resonated with me when you said what I call our informal caregivers, you know, people that are providing this home care that aren't paid professionals that are doing it. It's family member or friend, not even realize they're doing it. You know, it's just, you know, to me, that just tugs at my heartstrings because that's what we do. We care for each other. We're family. We're friends. You know, why would I even think that that's some kind of like formalized role that I'm playing? It's just what family does. And what is the cost savings from these informal caregivers providing these like how much would that cost you know an insurance oh, company yeah, you know there is a number yeah there is a number yeah. and i don't have it off the top of my head i i i should um it it's billions yeah so it's, it's, it, yeah it's, so you know how many dollars a, a year collectively are these informal caregivers saving insurance companies that likely you know maybe they don't even cover it but it's just for me it, it is such at a crisis level you know, in this country and, and likely touches just about every tax paying voting person out there knows or is already doing this kind of work. And you're so true. Okay. So I started when I was speaking to one of the, I don't remember if it was a house or a Senate committee a couple years ago, but I don't know, I was talking and I started with you're either a caregiver, no caregiver, or about to become a Love caregiver. It. There is no way around. I mean, it, it's just, it's so prevalent. Everybody is being touched in some form or fashion by caregiving, whether they realize it or not. Like uh -huh. you said, they're definitely are. And it's just, um, it's just what we, we just, again, we just need to really focus on it, educate on it and understand. You know, the other thing, you have a lot of people who leave the workforce to care mm. or they reduce they don't they don't work full time they reduce yep. because they they don't want to they they, they want they, there's no one to help them and now they, they can't yeah. continue yeah. all of it so one of the things that um, i've been pushing public policy wise and uh have i have the attention of the department but again it's this pandemic because we were having the discussion and then well it's we finally started having it again recently is direct care um is to really be paying for self-directed care so that individual, we have a, we, we do it in the veterans. Uh, we have a veterans program that does it. And I think it works really well. And I would like to see it in more public programs 
is that the actual you know client the veteran of our case or the elderly care recipient is kind of the gets a budget and then they pay individuals they trust to to come provide the care uh, so you can hire your sibling you know your your daughter your your even your wife so we have veterans who get their care plan you know, get their amount of money and then they pay their wife to provide their care so you're compensating the caregiver some dollars you know but but then they're able to kind of not have to work with regular um agencies mm -hmm. that you know need direct care workers but they could pay somebody at their church who or uh, you know neighbor down the road uh their daughter and you know even what we see a lot of right now are very younger uh millennials caring uh, you're seeing younger caregivers caring for their their grandparents. Mm -hmm. so they could, uh, I had one individual who said, you know, oh, I'm thinking about this. Well, I've asked my son to college at home remotely and watch my, you know, my mother while I'm, you know, so yeah. they're, they're seeing this kind of thing. So, oh, if that could get compensated for, it'd be great. So, well, I think we may see more self-directed care because we just don't have enough uh, workers. hundred percent. There's a program that's run through the Florida Association Center for Independent Living, somewhat similar, and it's for personal care attendants. And those could be your family and friends. And, but then qualifications right now are pretty narrow. Got to have, you know, sustainable employment, need a personal care attendant, not on benefits and those kind of things that are in there for that. But I'm, I'm fully in favor of being able to offset a lot of the costs that would be incurred people quitting their jobs, having to care for people, um, and doing this work that's ultimately saving so much money and is life-saving work at the same time. So I really like that idea of direct. Yeah. And you know, honestly, sometimes it'd be more comfortable to get bathed by somebody you trust and know than to get bathed by a stranger. So yeah. it's like, you know, that's another benefit of self-directed care because, you know, sometimes you lose a little bit of your, <laughs> you know, your dignity when you feel like you have to have these strangers and sometimes there's turnover. So you may have a different person bathe in you yep. from one week to the next. And that's just not comfortable not. for people. And you know, it would be nice to have somebody, you know, I think trusted to come in because they're doing some very personal uh -huh. work yeah. with these 100 percent, and you know i want to you know use that as an opportunity to link into what um i don't know a ton about this issue area um but i, I can tell you from people with disabilities who do have to hire out of pocket for personal care attendants that there have been people that have taken advantage of them have stolen from them and sometimes abuse them and so i i believe that elder abuse is a real issue and uh, want to get your thoughts on it and if you could educate us on it oh, about it. Wow. So yeah, you brought up something that is, it is a huge issue. Uh -huh. It's not one that people like to talk about. Well, it's let's not- Let's get into it. Yeah, no, that we need to. Yeah, you know, I, I said what, you know, hopefully one day when we've done our job correctly, people will be just as um, understanding of elder abuse as child abuse, right? Ooh, and and that it's prevalent, it's out there, it's happening all the time and people don't know. They don't know what to do with it. They have a feeling something's not right. Uh, usually in elder abuse that the person's abuser is somebody who's very close to them, right? It's very rarely not, it's not a stranger usually. Same it's as yeah, sexual predators. Yeah, and so it's just a, a huge issue. What I, my biggest, um, my biggest soapbox thing that I get on is it's so underfunded in all of the aging services. We get, and I'm not making this up, $21,000 a year to do elder abuse and that's it in 16 counties 16 counties that's it 
and there is no other dollars for elder abuse awareness training education now of course we do we include it in other stuff right because we know how important it is uh, i actually our agency went out and did a grant with lachua county sheriff's office the uh, prosecutor's office and peaceful pass and so we luckily got that grant and we do have an elder abuse coordinator that we have on staff right now that works and we have an elder abuse advocate that works full-time at peaceful pass that is actually a peaceful pass staff person but it's funded through this grant and that's only for uh, three counties it covers alachua bradford and union and it's sad because there's just not enough funding in it now there isn't an elder justice act that was passed a couple years ago and there is some funding attached to it i haven't seen how that dollars come down i mean they definitely don't come down through our network but it's really unfortunate it's not it's not been recognized on a policy level or a funding level for the importance that it has because you talk about quality of life um, one is the abuse that goes on, obviously, but then how it makes the individual feel. I mean, they're, they're, it's just because usually, like I said, it's, it's going to be perpetrated by somebody who they love and then they will turn them in. Wow. If they're what we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of, especially during the opioid crisis, is that there is their child or their grandchild who is a subs, you know, abusing opioids and you know, there's issues in, in their money and stealing and taking their own medication. They actually taking their grandparents' medications, um, things like that. And so then you have this issue where they love their child or their grandchild. Oh, they don't mean to do it. You know, they have a problem and they don't bring it forward. And um, and abuse can go on for a very long time. Uh, usually it gets turned in, you know, anonymously at some point. But we're, you know, we try to educate people that it's, there's so many different types there's financial abuse which obviously you have a lot of that going mm -hmm. on where it you know people's trying to divert their funds steal their social security checks yeah, etc um then you have you know obviously physical abuse and then you have neglect and, and yeah the, the people just who are neglecting themselves you mm -hmm. know so we're out trying to to take a look at um or or, or you know they're they're caring uh -huh. for their older parent but they're taking their social security check, but they have it blocked in a room. Very, very sad cases we've seen. Um, it's unfortunate that we do work with the um, Department of Children and Families, Adult Protective Service investigators. Uh, they have APIs just like they have child protective investigators. Mm. So if you see it and they get reports, they will um, many times go out there, but lots of times the abuse has been going on for so long, a lot of the damage is done. Why do you think it doesn't get like the attention it would for child abuse? I don't really know. I, I don't know if it's just uncomfortable for people to talk about, or maybe it's just that we haven't, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to we haven't educated people enough on it, right? Maybe it's an it, awareness, it, people, yeah. Yeah, it's awareness. They don't really think about it or they don't know, you know, where we've seen good education, a little more education is in the financial side, like banks will educate their employees. Mm. If, you know, large things or strange things going on, but you don't get a whole lot of just general conversation out there. And it's, it's a, it's an uncomfortable subject, I guess. And, um, it is, I'm not really sure sometimes I, I, I don't even know if I want to make this statement because I feel, yeah. but uh, yeah, so, but I will. Um, I think sometimes individuals value children's life more than they do. Yeah, older adults. I, you know, intuitively, I would say there's probably something there again like i think of ageism sometimes you know um yeah, you know, and it's I, real right oh it's very real and it's kind of like you know um yeah kids are cuter 
to people than older adults. And and, yeah. and, oh, and, they, got, and they got their whole life ahead of them and this older sure. adult probably gonna not be around much longer anyway. So, yeah. and that's a really sad, sad thing, but I, I think that there's definitely a component. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, the measure of empathy that people might have would equilibrate differently. And, and maybe it's a societal thing. You know, I'm told that there's other cultures that, you know, have more reverence and respect for older, you know, elders in their community and, and that, you know, our society celebrates youth so much. And, and, and maybe there's you know, kind of social, cultural, normative kind of things that are out there as well that can contribute to that. So... I think so. I think so. And what, what you see a lot of times too, in certain cultures is definitely they, they respect them more and, and they're usually ones that they're also in their living situation. They're more multi-generational yeah, living situation. Yeah. Um, and they treat them with much more respect. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I think we are very obsessed with youth. And I think that is got a lot to do with why it doesn't the older adult in America is maybe not always as valued as, as the older adult, maybe other countries. Yeah. And again, you know, there's social, cultural, normative attitude. I mean, we face that with disability and stigma with disability and lack of empathy too, you know, with like, again, it's a disability can be an uncomfortable subject for people. Don't like to think about it. I don't know. I, I think we face similar issues in there and fixing social, cultural, normative attitudes is, is difficult to shift <laughs> that a, one too. That's a big, that's, yeah, that's a big one to tackle. That's a big so. one to tackle. Like I, as hard as our programs and services are to meet needs, you know, that's so much more concrete and tangible to get your arms around. But these attitudes, you know, and maybe conversations like this and, you know, bringing up things uh, to people and having a safe space to have courageous conversations about things that are more difficult can be ways of planting seeds to get the shift, you know, that's needed in, in kind of people's attitudes and everything else like that. The thing is, is like, you know, none of us stay young forever. And mm-hmm. so shifting this, oh, who's everybody? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. It's, you can't get away from it. Well, I mean, you could, but the, uh, the yeah. alternative is not, not great. great. Yeah. Uh, Father time's <laughs> so undefeated. Just, yeah. You know, it, it gets everybody. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you're doing so such great work in so many different areas, you know, and imagine that there's something that drives you to do what you do, that inspires you to do what you do. What is that? Yeah. Um. You know, I've always... I mean, and I know a lot of people say this, but, you know, even in the very beginning, I always wanted to be in some type of a career where I was going to make a difference of helping people, uh-huh. right? I, I, I just, I've always wanted to do that. And believe it or not, I started down the journey of um, uh, wanting to be in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. So I, that was kind of where I thought I was going to go and didn't really, you know, which I think happens a lot. Not a lot of people look at aging. Oh, I want to go get into aging, right? Uh, it's, it's just yeah. that not that attractive to people. And I didn't really even know or think to, to get into that type of, a, but I wanted to get into the criminal justice system and, and find a way to, to hopefully better uh, that system. And especially, I was actually honestly going to work on the other end of the spectrum and wanted to look at juvenile justice and, and how we could take a look at, you know, re- rehabilitation uh-huh. versus punitive. So that was my goal. And then you, you're a college graduate and jobs don't come as easy as you think. Uh-huh. And, and, I, uh, strangely enough, fell into this, I was hired as a computer. Um, I, I was just happened to be really good at computers and IT right. programming. And that's how they hired me at, at the agency. And that was almost 22 years ago. Wow. Or about 21 and a half years ago, I started at the agency. From IT to director. Wow. 
Well, yeah, so I started with that and, and then um, didn't like that and wanted to walk away because I'm like, I'm not helping anybody with IT. Yeah. I, I wanted to be out there and I wanted to be in, in policy. I wanted to make policy. And, and I think what drove me was just the idea that how you're really going to make changes through systemic change, you know, really, truly changing policy or changing the way we um, we do things so i thought i i just that i wanted to do something like that so i i actually walked in and resigned and the director at the time was like oh no you know we don't want to lose <laughs> lose you so how about we we try you in a different area and um and then he really put me into where i was involved in public policy like i would do research on bills and legislation and things like that and you know it just uh it felt good when you could see something happen that you could make a change in the system that you knew would actually better. Uh -huh. um, I have to tell you, when I became the director, my father said to me, um, every decision, I was so nervous, he said, every decision you make, um, you make it with your heart for what's going to benefit the most, you know, benefit people the most, and you'll be making the right decision. Wow. And so I do, I think about that every time. I, I always tell our staff, I said, one thing we can never forget is why we're here is the client. So when you're ever making a decision, don't think about the bureaucratic red tape or all that first, think about the client uh -huh. first and what best decision for the client, the person we're trying to serve. And then let's see how we can make that happen wow. through bureaucratic red tape, right? Love it. Uh, so yeah, and, and I just, um, I, I, I do, I like to try to see if I can help people. and. And there's different ways to help people. And mine was to see if I could change policy or affect policy change. What have you learned along the way in these efforts about either yourself or about people in general or the world we live in? Um, well, that <laughs> trying to get anything to change in government is like <laughs> almost impossible. Catch the wind yeah. and you'll have better luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, um, actually it's, it's much harder it takes a long time, patience. Um, Ooh, patience. It takes dedication and just going over and over. And, you know, if you believe in it enough, work harder for it. Don't give up, you know, mm. keep pushing it, keep pushing it, keep bringing it up and pushing your idea because it's going to take the right person to hear you, the right administration to be in place for you to maybe, maybe be able to make that change. But if you truly believe in it, I think you just have to keep pushing on it. And I have to say the strangest thing in the world is the pandemic caused finally the government system to get a little more flexible, right? Ooh, that, yeah. that, you know, give us a little bit of uh, freedom to to do what's right for our communities and our clients and the people we serve. But we, we know them, we listen to them. Now, they, they should choose, we shouldn't choose for them what they want. We should listen to them and let empower them, let them choose. That's been happening a little more since the pandemic. So that's your other silver lining really was that flexibility has been introduced um, in the system a bit. So I'm hearing some values here. So the value of being patient because change doesn't always happen as fast as we want to and being persistent, those probably go hand in hand uh, to be able to have, have some faith you know, that you're in it and dedicated you know, to the thing and flexibility and adaptability, be like water. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you got to be flexible and, um, you know, learn to, and, and learn to pick your battles, figure out what's the most important thing Prioritize. And yeah. change. Prioritize it and then go after that. And yeah, but it's a, it's a rewarding career and I, I love it. I, I'll tell you another thing I've learned, right. uh, 
day for retirement. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just sad. It, it's really sad because it's, yeah. it is a long-term care can be very costly. Very costly. Yeah. It's shocking. The sticker price uh, is a very big shocker. So prioritizing, and I want to connect this to, you know, you're, you seem to me to be, you're talking a lot of policy, but you also run programs. And, and when I'm in public health, it seemed like those broke out into either or camps. You know, I work with some people that are like health policy only, education doesn't work. You know, these other things don't work. You got to require people not to smoke. You got to find people to wear their seatbelts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you had people in the camps of like, no, we need to just educate people. You know, we need to make sure that they have the proper skills or peer supports and be very programmatic about it. Where do you fall on the either or, or maybe it's an and, you know, in this area? Because like, yeah. so policy takes a long time, you know, and this education takes a long time. So I don't know, where, where, where do you fall on, on this? Well, education is definitely a huge key component because the truth of the matter is that, you know, it, it's going to, it's going to take a lot of times, you know, individuals to, to make those choices. I, I really do believe in empowering people to, to make their decisions for themselves. Right. So, you know, you kind of go out there and you do, you educate them. Um, you know, I, I like to look at making policy changes to aware. I mean, be honest with you, I, I like policy changes to where it is more flexible. In other words, where we can stop saying, okay, we know what's right for you. This is what you should do. Yeah. This is what we want to serve. I really do believe in giving people the education and the understanding. The interesting thing is people don't understand long-term care. They don't know what it is. They don't understand the system. And, you know, it's one of the big age-old things is people think long-term care is part of Medicare. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Medicare does not cover long-term care, yeah, okay? Yeah. Not even close. That's acute care. Um, that is what Medicare covers. It covers, you know, clinical and acute care, not uh, long-term care. And so I definitely think education is an absolute must. And again, it's hard because going back to what we were talking about earlier, you don't really get paid to market or outreach or educate as much. Now we do have education classes that, but just doing general education, mm. um, they do not fund you for that. Yeah. Right. So. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's gotta be a mixture of both. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I think it, it is. I, there was a, a wise old professor that told me at once, like education's needed, but not sufficient. And I kind of look at where we're at right now with the vaccine, right? It seems like, you know, there's one part of this that's like, let's, you know, educate people and have the freedom to choose to get it or not get it. And then, you know, after that is seen out for a little bit. Now we have the evidence to see that not all people are getting it. And, this, that, and the other. And now you got the mandates. Now the policy's coming, you know? So I see this playing out in there as well. So where we have, you know, educate people, but at the same time, don't force people. Then you got now the policy coming in to do this. And that, and I feel like we're seeing this play out in that issue area, you know, as well, as far as what to do. And, you know, that of course plays out into, like I began with smoking. So, you know, if we didn't have policies on that, people might still be smoking indoors. And, you know, you got people saying I should have the freedom to smoke. And then you got people saying I should have the freedom to breathe clean air. And it's just an interesting space. <laughs> it's just an interesting space to have these conversations. And, and I absolutely don't want what oftentimes people would call a nanny state. And at the same time, I don't want people behaving in a way where we need a nanny, you know, to be able to do it. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. It, it's difficult. It's, it's a really, we're in a difficult yeah. place now. It's because it seems like it's even more so. It's just, uh, it's, it's showing up right now. 
I don't have the answer for that one. I can tell you that it's interesting. This is a this vaccine um, access and, and campaign has brought more interesting conversations yeah. with my board than I've had in a lot of other policies and things. So, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a surreal. fine line we have. To yeah, it is. It is in yeah. interesting times. <laughs> interesting times for sure. One of the things that I like to ask all the guests as they come on, given that you know you're in this space as well, so I'd be interested to get in your opinion on it. What does independent living, the independent life, mean to you? Uh, well, I think it means that I have agency over my own self and my own body and my own choices and, mm. and the way I choose to live, but also that I have the, that my community, there's a support system within my community that is uh, robust enough to allow me to be able to participate and uh, I enjoy and I want to engage in, right? Yeah. That I have the support system if I need extra help versus somebody who's, you know, yeah. um, to, to get there to be able to do it. And it comes in a lot of forms, not just physical, but again, internet and things like that. I mean, we need to be able to have a robust support system in our communities that everybody kind of has the same access to the things that, that they may enjoy or that they need. Right. <laughs> Not even just that they enjoy, but healthcare and the things that they need, and that you know that that and it matters a lot with the community that you live in. I believe uh, if you're going to be able to be as independent. Sure. Um, so you know, and that I have the again going kind of back to some of of your individual understanding and choice that I can kind of yeah. live a good life that I that I that I that I think is a good life yeah. and I choose uh, in the in the environment that I choose. Um, you know, we want people to age in place and we, we we used to say okay well you know we, people want to age at home or age but well that's not always true we just want people to age in the setting they choose uh, some people do want to not stay home uh -huh. <laughs> some people a different setting they they want to be they want to go to an assisted living facility or or they or they may feel more comfortable going into skilled care at some point in their life and so not dictating that but letting them choose what works best for them and, and age where they want to age um, but I think we, we, uh, us in aging and uh -huh. in the disability world, I think we need to be focusing on what kind of community supports and robust systems can we help to try to build so that people have that choice. I love your answer. You combine a few things here, you know, between the, the agency, the independence to, and freedom to make the choices that, are, you know, we would like to make for ourselves and having infrastructure, you know, a community set up in a way that we can make those choices and how they're interdependent upon each other. So it's not like independence is mutually exclusive of interdependence. And so I like how you really brought those two together because I've, I know for myself, sometimes I can get caught up in that siloed way of binary thinking. And it's not, it's, it's uh, you know, kind of like that Venn diagram where, you know, two con you know, circles are coming together to be overlapping in the middle. So yeah, you know, agency has its own thing and interdependence can have its own thing. And yet at the same time, they can exist in the same space and make total sense and they need each other, you know, in, in many ways. So you have a beautiful answer there. <laughs> well, Kristen, I, I want to thank you. You really have illuminated, you know, not just what Elder Options is all about and the wonderful services that you all have. And we're going to have linked up in our show notes, any and all of the links and numbers and resources that people can get to, to, to 
get connected with all the great, wonderful services and programs that you do. And you, you articulated that. There's so much more to the depth of what you, you know, all do and offer as well. But I really appreciate you coming on and bringing up some of the real issues that are impacting, you know, older adults uh, in our community in, in such a way that really resonates with me. And I know it'll resonate with our listeners in terms of really why we need to be caring about this, you know, from the heartstrings and how this really does impact all of us. And thank you so much for all the dedication and work and service that you do in meeting the needs of people in our community, you know, people that are, you know, our mothers our grandmothers, our, our fathers, our grandfathers, our aunts, our uncles, you know, you all touch and serve the people in our community that have raised us and touched us and, and are so important and vital to the society that we get to live in and the freedoms that we get to enjoy. So thank you for serving those that have served us and of allowing us to do and live the lives that we're able to live independently. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for all you do, because I know you guys are doing a wealth of services and, and, and information and, and supports and all of that. And I look forward to working closely yes. in the future with you. Yeah. We will we're definitely make this happen. Uh, on the side of the road. We're going we'll to come back. Yeah, we're going to come back and do another episode and, and talk about okay. the collaborative efforts that we have, where we're going, where we are and where what it's all about. So I look forward to it. Yeah, It's going to happen until the next time, Kristen. Onward and upward. All right. Thank you. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.